0: You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Okay, good morning, Red Sea. It is uh, good to see you guys again this week. Can I get a thumbs up that everybody can hear me? We're good? Okay, Awesome. Uh, so we're going to be continuing in our series uh, that we've entitled The Exile. Uh, so if you're new with us uh, or you haven't been following along in the series, uh, we've been teaching through the Minor Prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, the book that we're going to look at today is the book of Amos. And so if you got a Bible, feel free to open it up to the book of Amos. Amos is going to bring a message to the northern kingdom of, uh, of Israel. And instead of me trying to unpack all the history um, of Amos's audience, because we're trying to teach through a whole book here in one message. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna lead you on a little visual journey. So uh, I need everyone to uh, kind of imagine with me as we walk through the background to uh, to Amos. You guys ready? Okay. So imagine a shepherd. His name's Amos. He has the long wool cloak to protect his skin from the harsh sun. His face is weathered and wrinkled from years of working outdoors. His hands are cracked and rough from tending sycamore trees. He lives in the town of Tekoa, which is a part of the the southern kingdom of, of Judah. The town sits on a high plain, and it has a commanding view of the rugged wilderness. Amos, he picks up his staff, he looks back at his home, and then in determination, he sets his eyes north. And he begins his journey. He's going to pass agricultural fields that are rich with crops. The farmers have built large plantations from years of peace and prosperity living in the Negev Valley. He's going to walk a hard, dirt-packed but rutted road. As he journeys, he's going to pass caravans or get passed by caravans that are coming up from Arabia. They're going to carry spices, rich cloth ivory, gold, and jewelry, all to be sold in the markets of Jerusalem and Samaria. He has a 10-mile journey to get to Jerusalem before he can stop and take a break. On his left, he passes the Mount of Olives. At the very top, he sees a a temple to the pagan god (coughs) Moloch. Smoke rises from the temple. Amos shakes his head, thinking of the children that his people have sacrificed to this pagan god. Just past the Mount of Olives, he comes upon the city of Jerusalem with its temple mound. As he approaches, he notices the new anti-siege towers have been built just above the city gates, a sign of Judah's military strength. As he enters through the southern gate, he sees scores of beggars lining the entrance. His own people have fallen into crushing debt. They've lost all of their possessions and now are relegated to a life of begging. He enters the city and he sits in the the square to take a rest. Around him, the people flaunt their wealth with colorful robes, jewelry, mingling in their social circles. The buzz of the town is the defeat of Gath, their longtime Philistine enemy to the West, which brings a a pride to the nation. They also talk of the new tax that they've they've been able to levy on the trans-Jordanian region, punishing their enemies even more. They talk of their... Puppet King Jotham, but they know who the real king is. It's his father Uzziah, who remains in hiding in his palace because of the leprosy that he's contracted. Well, Amos's journey is only halfway over, so he rises, he's gonna exit through one of the northern gates of the city. He's got another twelve miles to go before his journey ends. He soon leaves the southern kingdom and he enters into the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. He sees less agriculture because of the, the harsh terrain. But the military might of the northern kingdom is obvious as bands of soldiers patrol the roads looking for bandits, slavers, and other attacking Philistines. Once again, all the high places are dotted with idols and astral poles. Just like in the southern kingdom, people come and go from the altars offering their sacrifices. One temple in particular is, is crowded. It's the local temple of Baal right on the roadside. Underneath its pillars, fertility prostitutes lay in their revealing clothing. He watches his brothers go into these women to ensure their prosperity as they offer their bodies to Baal. Amos is weary from a long journey, but he continues and he sets his eyes on his final destination, which is going to be the city of Bethel, because God's given him a message to the northern kingdom. As he enters the city, he sees even more beggars, widows, foreigners, starving children lying along the streets. In the center of the city lays the king's sanctuary, from which the city gets its name. The palace built by King Jeroboam to represent the power and might of his kingdom. This city also has a temple to Yahweh, but what it's more well known for is the giant golden bull that resides just outside of the king's palace. The bull is meant to represent God, and it's where the people offer their sacrifices. With eyes of stone, Amos approaches the bull, and he turns and he begins to address his countrymen. He begins his prophecy in the court, and what we can imagine is a a crowd will start to gather, curious of the words of another prophet that God has sent to speak to them in a long line of prophets. Amos will begin his prophecy condemning Israel's Syrian neighbors. See, they have been at war with them as long as anyone could remember. They continually try to push into the northern kingdom boundaries. So when Amos says that the Assyrians have treaded on Israel like grain that's been rolled under a sledge, the people begin to nod their heads in agreement. Well, Amos, he's going to go on to condemn the Philistines, the Edomites, the the Ammonites. Now the crowd around Amos, it's it's going to start to swell. Heads are nodding in agreement. Battle cries begin to go up in the condemnation of the enemies of Israel. A man's going to shout out the day of the Lord, which will rally up the crowd. But then Amos' tone changes, and he he looks south, and he brings a condemnation toward the southern kingdom. Let's look at it together in Amos 2, 4 through 5. Verse 4, thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. At this point, the the crowd begins to smile and, and murmur, you know, the the, uh, the condemnation that Ammon brings against the southern kingdom, it's a, it's a violation of the law of God. It's a breaking of the covenant. Talks about the consequences of covenantal disobedience. Pride begins to swell in the crowd. When you think about it, the, the surrounding pagan nations have been condemned. Their rival southern kingdom, Judah, has now been condemned because of violation of the law. Heads are shaking. They're feeling pretty good about themselves. Until Amos addresses them directly. Look at what he says in Amos 2, 6-8. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Well, at this point, the crowd would be left in an awkward silence at hearing their own judgment. So instead of condemning them for idolatry, Amos condemns them for social injustice. Instead of helping the afflicted, they were selling them so that they could get a new pair of sandals. I mean, how low can you get They were were committing incest with prostitutes, right? I mean, this is bad. Uh, And actually, the the visual that Amos paints here is really disturbing. He says that these people would take the cloak of someone as a down payment on a debt, right? Well, the rule was that if you're going to take somebody's cloak in a debt, at the end of the day, you had to give them their cloak back so they didn't freeze to death at night. But instead, what these people were doing is they were taking a cloak in debt. Then when nightfall came, they were going to the pagan prostitutes. They were using the coat as bedding. And then while they're performing this act, they're drinking the wine that had been offered to God as a drink offering. Uh, It doesn't get much worse than this for the people of Israel. Well, the crowd, they would have really been taken back by this condemnation. See, the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, they thought their wealth and prosperity was an unmistakable sign of God's blessing. But in fact, their present wealth and power had had nothing to do with God's blessing because much of their wealth and power had come at the expense of the poor. They were systematically oppressing the poor. Their worship of God was was little more than an attempt at magical manipulation of him much like their religion, the religion of their pagan neighbors. They deserve the punishment that's going to come upon them. And Babylon's going to come, and they're going to be taken off in the captivity. You know, we read that story today, and we think about just the, the heinous things both the nation of Israel and Judah were doing, and, and I think we're quick to, to judge them and to say that they're going to get what's coming. But, you know, as I was thinking about it this week, I started to notice some parallels between the passage and the lives that we live today. You know, once again, materialism has has taken root in many of our lives. We find value and meaning in in the stuff that we've accumulated. Our homes have become our palaces, our status symbols. Amazon has become our Arabia. We, too, live in a country that finds security behind its military conquests. The entrances to our cities are filled with the poor and the begging. Our temples of sexuality are just a mouse click away. The high places of our city have become stadiums where we worship superstars. And we have a giant golden bull that we turn to and offer the sacrifice of financial security. See, the difference between us and the original audience is they're going to suffer the consequences of covenantal disobedience, which God is going to use to, to, to force them back into a relationship with him. And today, we still deserve the same judgment. But our punishment, it's been taken on the cross. That's why the gospel is such good news. God's answer to the, to the brokenness of our world for us today is not to judge it, but instead to come in and redeem it by sending his son to bear the condemnation of the cross. The condemnation, He bore the curse of our sin and God raised him from the dead. See, God is, is redeeming his creation. Although today the punishment of sin has been paid for, we still find ourselves under the effect of sin uh, I talked about this last week a little bit in my message. Just the, the already not yet of the kingdom of God. Sin has already been paid for, but we are not yet sinless. See, the, the world's fallen, and all of us are feeling the effects of that fallenness. Creation has fallen, human relationships are fallen, and our relationship with God has fallen. The brokenness in creation causes viruses like COVID-19 and other natural disasters. Amos actually dates his book around an earthquake that's going to hit the Middle East. Earthquakes, like pandemics, are a result of a broken creation. Our relationship with other human beings are fallen, which causes all types of pain in our lives and the lives of others. Just like Amos' audience, we still use power and authority to subjugate people. Our relationship with God is broken, too. And just like Amos' audience, this leads us to worship all kinds of false gods. It's the reality of our existence. All of this adversity, affliction, pain, and death stems from one basic cause. The world is fallen. But the good news is that we serve a suffering God who entered into our suffering by becoming a man and then answering our suffering by suffering himself on the cross. This allows us to to see that Jesus knows our pain. God allows suffering as part of his plan to restore the image of Jesus within us, just like he was working to restore the nation of Israel. God is always at work restoring his creation, and he uses suffering as a part of that process. So I want us this morning just to talk a little bit about God's purposes and suffering, because right now a lot of people are asking, you know, why are we suffering like this? Where is God in the midst of this pandemic? So I just kind of want to start off the conversation with you guys and say, there's no easy answers to why God does what he does. As a created being, who am I to try to stand in front of you guys and explain the purposes of a triune, omnipresent being. And I don't don't want to come across today as trying to be an expert on suffering because we may never know some of the reasons that we suffer. And I know you guys, I know the pain that many of you guys are going through during this season and just just past pain. Maybe you heard that story of Amos and, and you were able to identify with some of the people in those stories and how they were used. See, God allows our suffering as a part of his plan. You and I may have very little control over how much we suffer. But what we can do is participate with God in this plan of of the perfecting process in our lives by responding to suffering in, in faith. So I want you guys to flip over to Romans 8 twenty eight through nineteen, it's one of the most profound test uh, New Testament passages on suffering. This is what it says. And we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn the firstborn of our many brothers. Notice here in this text that Paul does not say that suffering itself is good. He says all things, including suffering, work together for the good of Christians. Suffering is not good, but God uses it for good. And this promise in Romans 8, it assures us that God's divine purpose is working through events that might otherwise seem random and pointless in our lives you know, we could acknowledge this truth. It's far more difficult to live out God's sovereign goodness and wisdom in the midst of all the trials that we may be going through. Like how we find ourselves today, stuck in our homes, unsure of what the future, looking at the news and wondering how bad this thing's going to get. This is a time to lean into those powerful truths of God's sovereignty in our lives. Another truth that we can turn to in the midst of trials is found in Matthew ten, twenty nine through 31. This is what Jesus says to his disciples to prepare them for the trials that they're going to face. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Jesus tells his disciples, Know that no matter what happens, you are known and loved by the Father. And when you find yourself in these moments of suffering, and when it's hard to believe that, we turn to these truths. What possible good could God have in this pandemic? We can't always readily perceive the love and the goodness of God in our circumstances, but the gospel invites us to look beyond our situation to the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. I'm going to put up a quote on the screen here. It's from a book called A Gospel Primer for Christians. That's a Milton Vincent quote. And I just love the way it articulates gospel and trials. He says, More than anything else I could ever do, the gospel enables me to embrace my tribulations and thereby position myself to gain full benefit from them. For the gospel is the one great permanent circumstance in which I live and move and every hardship in my life is allowed by God only because it serves his gospel purpose in me. When I view my circumstances in light of this, I realize that the gospel is not just one piece of good news that fits into my life somewhere among all the bad. I realize instead that the gospel makes genuinely good news out of every other aspect of my life, including my severest trials. The good news about my trials is that God is forcing them to bow to his good purpose and to do good upon me by improving my character and making me conform to the image of Christ. I think the prophetic message for us today from the book of Amos is that God can use suffering to change us and change those people around us. And I'm going to say it again. I don't know all of God's good purposes in our suffering, But I truly believe what that quote said, that God is forcing my trials to bow to his good purposes. And if we're open to God's good purposes, then there's all kinds of change that he can do in our lives during these difficult seasons. And that's what I want to see happen in our lives. I want to see us change during this season, not just survive, but really thrive with our relationship with God. So I'm just going to walk you guys through a couple of the points of suffering that I can see in the Word of God as I look at it. The first one is that God uses suffering to teach us His Word. Uh, Amos, he's going to address his people. And throughout his book, he's going to say, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, because he wants them to hear the, the voice of God. And he made it really, really clear to them what God was saying to them. Look at it in Amos 5. 21 to 24. He says, "I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fat and animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen." But let justice roll down like waters, and righteous like an ever-flowing stream. Billy referenced the Sandra McCracken song, Justice Will Roll Down. And he, and he was right, and what he said is like, God doesn't care about all of our religious activities. He wants our heart, and he wants our heart through obedience to his word. We had our monthly North Portland Pastors Gathering this past week over Zoom, as you can imagine, and the question that was raised during that time what is, what do you see God doing during this time of pandemic? And one of the things that came up during that time is what we're not seeing is people flooding to faith, at least not here in Portland, to answer the question of why. That's something we're not seeing at this point. Not saying that God couldn't do that. But as I talk to my neighbors, Uh, and they all know I'm a Christian they're not asking me God you know Josh why is God doing this but what I do see people God doing during this time is working on the hearts of his people because what we have lost is our religious routine I mean think about that that's really what Amos says that God hates is religious routine And, and I think it's so striking Nate mentioned this in his Hosea message if faith was me showing up at Red Sea Church on a Sunday morning, if that's what following God looked like, then maybe that needs to be taken away for a season so that I can lean into a relationship with God that's not dependent on Billy having to get up there with a guitar or one of the elders having to teach. It's leaning into God's word because I believe God is speaking powerfully to us during this time. What would I ask of you guys, And of myself, turn your ear toward God. Ask him what he's trying to teach you. Let him speak to you because he will speak during this time. The second thing that I see in scripture that God uses suffering for is he uses suffering to point out our idols. Uh, Another reference here to Amos, Amos 3, 13 through 15. It says, hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Baal, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end. I mean, think about the context here for that condemnation that Amos brings. He's standing in front of the king's palace with a giant golden bull behind him, and the temple right next to him. And, and God says, I'm going to cut off the altar, the, the, the horns of both of your altars. The, the, in the sanctuary, there would have been an altar that had horns on it, and the bull itself had horns on it. Now, the purpose of the horns on the altar in the sanctuary was it was meant to be a place of refuge, If you were ever running for your life, you could run and cling on to the horns of the altar and thereby no one could kill you. It was the the safest place you could possibly be. And God says, I'm gonna destroy that altar and I'm gonna destroy the altar of your bull that you're turning to so that you may turn to me. And as I was thinking about that, man, I I really had to question, is God destroying our golden bull because he wants us to find our financial security and his provisions for us and not our 401k. Maybe we have no idea what type of idols God is trying to destroy in our lives during this time, but let's be open to that because he may be using suffering in that way. The third thing that I see in scripture that God uses suffering for is to discipline us. I'm going to turn to the new Testament for a couple of texts here. Hebrews 12, five through six, that actually quotes an Old Testament. It quotes a proverb. But this is what Hebrews 12, five through six says. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My sons do not regard, regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. I know this is a, a hard truth, but... We should not grow weary of God's discipline because Hebrews and Proverbs says that it's a badge of sonship. God is not punishing us when we suffer as his children. God reproves and corrects us, but he's not punishing us. God does not give us what we deserve. Instead, he uses suffering to train us. And, and one of the stunning implications of this that really hit me was that we should not wish away our suffering. Hmm. He disciplines us for our good. His rod of correction is proof, not of his anger, but of his love. So let's embrace it during this season. The fourth thing that God uses suffering for is to test and purify our faith. God uses suffering to test and purify our faith. Let's look like at 1 Peter 1, 6-7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, the the, the idols of our heart are run deep. You know, when we think about the sin that's in our life, many times we think about the the outward manifestations of, of, of sin. But really, the sin that you see on the outside, it's really a, a sign of a deeper idol, a deeper issue that's in our heart. And those things have to be dug out, like that passage says, that suffering refines and it tests, it brings out what's on the inside. And it's a painful process. Now, I think when we... Think about the ways that God wants to change us. Many times we want like a like a, a, a little update. Maybe if I could just get a little makeover, God, you know, like let's work on my anger. But God's like, no, I want to work on your heart. And it's hard work to get into our heart. A simple analogy here is um, about two weeks ago I had a Saturday uh, and I, I endeavored to paint my garage door. Door difference. I endeavored to paint my garage door. So I had been in this house uh, eight, nine years and had been on the to-do list for a long time. And the, the door looked bad. I had peeling paint. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to paint the garage door. And so I got out my paint scraper and I, and I first just started painting, scraping off all the, all the paint. And, you know, it wasn't too bad. It wasn't going to be, you know, maybe like two hour project. Then uh, I started working my way down the sides of the door. And as I started scraping off the paint, like chunks of rot started coming off. And as I looked closer, I noticed that the whole bottom of both sides of my garage door were completely rotten. I mean, it was literally sawdust that was being held on by paint. So I had to frame up my garage door. I had to get out and dig out all of the rot that was in the foundation. I had to replace it. And then four hours later, I set about the task of painting my garage door. And God works that way in our life. He, he's got to dig in there. There's some rot. And he's got to get at it. And it's hard and it stinks. And I was dirty and I was laying there on the ground. And it wasn't how I wanted to spend my Saturday. But the end result was a, was something that was amazing. And that's the thing about suffering. We always look back. And we can't deny the end result. It's all about perspective in the midst of our trials. The last thing I want to talk to you guys about here. Point number five is that God uses suffering to prepare us for glory, and this is the one that I think uh, I, I just don't think the most, think enough about in my own life. Look at Second Corinthians four sixteen through eighteen. Paul says here, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says something pretty stunning in this passage. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, Paul's saying there's something about suffering now that results in glory for eternity. See, this truth teaches us that these seeds of suffering that we're experiencing now are are preparing; they're being planted in this this soil that are that are preparing eternal glory for us, something that we'll see much later. And it's hard for us to view our trials this way because, to be honest, we're just short sighted. It's difficult to see past the pain, the idolatry, the sin, the sickness. But faith in Christ enables us to look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So Amos in his letter, he's going to bring this harsh message. He's going to spend all nine chapters just unpacking all the sin that's there. But I love the way that Amos ends his letter. And I think it's a good reminder for us when we talk about suffering and how we're going to end this message today. Look at Amos 5, 11 through 15. He says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Eden, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. I like to think that Amos in his message, he turns and he points at the, the the palace, the king's sanctuary, and he looks at the giant golden bull, and he says, all of this is going to be destroyed. And what will be replaced by it is a, is a tent of David. Now, it says booth in a lot of your Bibles. Tent's a good translation. Remember, that's all that God ever really wanted, just a, a simple place Where he could meet with his people and where they could meet with him. He doesn't need temples. He doesn't need palaces. He doesn't need feasts. He doesn't need altars. All he wants is the heart of his people to know him and to follow his ways. And he, in his sovereign purposes, will allow suffering to have us turn to his love. He wants to restore all that is broken. He is restoring all that is broken. One day we know he will fully restore all that is broken. As you prepare to receive communion in just a minute, you're going to take a a broken piece of the bread or the crackers Mm -hmm. or whatever you happen to have laying around your house at the moment. I want you to remember that brokenness represents the brokenness of this world. And then you're going to take the juice, and the juice is going to represent the the blood that was spilled, the the punishment that was paid for the brokenness. And in the midst of your trial, whatever it is, I want you to call out to God and remember his demonstration of love, his willingness to suffer for you. And I pray that that will strengthen you to continue to walk through a difficult season. So my hope for us as God's people is that in our trials, we will turn during the season turn our ear toward God and listen to his word. We will be open to the idols that God may want to destroy. We'll be open to the correction that he may bring as his children. We'll be open to the purifying of our faith. And we will continue on this journey of being prepared for eternal glory that God is doing through his word. Let's pray together and then we're going to continue in worship and communion. Father, Father, I just thank you for your timeliness in this text. Uh, to see the all the the suffering that was going to fall the people, and to, and to see the suffering that we see all around us right now, and I just want to stop and just acknowledge that all of the trials that are going on are not you punishing us, and we thank you so much for that punishment that was taken on the cross. But these trials that we're facing today are are simply your your sovereign will we would ask that you would bend our trials towards your good purposes. Would you give us the eyes to see your purposes in them? But even if you choose not to, Father, even if we can't see it, will we be able to continue to turn to faith in you to this season? And so we call out to you, Father. We worship you now. We remember your greatness. And we continue to walk in faith in you and in trust in your good, sovereign purposes in our lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.